Let's pray together before we open up God's Word. God, thank you for what we've been able to enjoy, even just so far today, studying your Word in our Sunday school classes, worshiping you, coming to you in prayer, enjoying Christian fellowship. God, you've given us so many blessings, and we're going to ask for another, that as we open your Word this morning, that you would make it come alive to us and that you would encourage us from the scriptures. God, help us to honor your word in our church today, and help us to have quiet, humble hearts to, um, to receive its truth. Amen. It's always a neat opportunity. Um, I hated that Skylar's sick, <laughs> but it's a great opportunity anytime I get to, to share the word with you guys. I feel like that's such a great opportunity and a great calling I think it's one of the, the best times of our week when we all come together and acknowledge um, the authority of God's Word as we look at its truths together and try and apply them to our lives. This morning we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. I've been going to the college study on Wednesday nights so far uh, this year. It's been great. They've been looking at the book of Philemon so far. And my desire to look at this passage in Ephesians is kind of coming up from, from that study on Wednesdays as they've been looking at, at Paul and Onesimus and Philemon. Um, because Onesimus was a slave. And he had to travel back to Philemon. And it's a book about forgiveness, but it's also a book about authority and recognizing authority. <coughs> Onesimus had to recognize Paul's authority to go back to Philemon when he arrived, he had to acknowledge Philemon's authority. Philemon was called to acknowledge Paul's authority. And all three of them were acknowledging Christ's authority. And as we were studying that, that book and looking at that authority, I, I just couldn't help but think about how uncomfortable the idea of authority is in our society today. And just how much people are revolting at the idea of submitting to authority. So I wanted to look at that from Scripture today. But it's all over the place. Children are disregarding their parents' authority more than ever in our country. People are rejecting law enforcement's authority, the authority of the government. Protests are happening. It's almost like our society and our culture thinks that rejecting authority is a badge of honor. That you're doing something right if you're rejecting authority. And that's not the message of the Bible at all. If you think back to the very beginning, what was the original sin? It was a rejection of authority and pride. Adam and Eve sinned long before their mouth closed on that fruit. When they rejected God's plan and God's desires in their lives, they'd already sinned. Their rejection of authority was the beginning of the problem of sin in the world. And you see it, it actually is a part of the curse that God gives to them in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3.16, God tells Eve, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So Eve's rejecting Adam's authority, and Adam is going to be abusing authority and ruling over his wife. The problem of sin started with authority, and it's affected our marriages, our families, our culture ever since. So what's a Christian's response to authority? That's the question we have to address today. We see it pop up in other places in the Bible. In Jude, verse 8, he's talking about false teachers and they have authority issues. He says, Yet in like manner these people, these false teachers, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. One of the major problems that churches face is that teachers are liable to slip in and even teach that we're supposed to reject authority. World leaders hate God's authority. Psalm 2, an incredible psalm, it starts out by saying, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Nobody wants God's authority in their life, whether it's 
individuals or countries or leaders of countries. Everyone rejects authority. Everyone's opposed to God's authority in their lives. And I'd just like to start by reminding us this morning that God takes rejection of authority very seriously. Very seriously. Look in 2 Peter 2.9, if you will. Let's start just by looking at this passage. 2 Peter 2.9 tells us just how seriously God takes it when people are unwilling to submit to authority. It says, and I'm starting partway through this verse, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and those who despise authority. God knows how to bless the righteous, and God knows how to punish those who are unrighteous, especially those who reject authority. It's like there's a special place in God's wrath for people who reject authority, especially He knows how to punish the unrighteous, but especially those who reject authority? That doesn't sound good at all. God hates it when people reject authority that he's put in place. And there's a reason for that, guys. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Where does authority come from? Romans 13 says it comes from God. All authority, whether it's the government or your teachers or law enforcement, all authority is instituted by God. Romans 13 goes on to say it's to protect those who do good and to punish those who do evil. God institutes authority so that there won't be chaos. So when we reject authority in our lives, even small authority, we're rejecting God's plan. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. Titus 3.1 says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. Submission to authority is a huge problem in the world. It's not supposed to be a problem for Christians. But sometimes it's difficult. He goes back to the Garden of Eden the original sin was pride, and pride has stayed, um, stayed an issue ever since. Pride's the root of all of our sin. It's the root of all of our arrogance uh, and our belief that we can do things on our own, at our own time, and through our own power. So when we submit to authorities, we're acknowledging that what God's plan is is right. So what I want to do from Ephesians 5 today, 5 and 6, um, it's a rich passage but we're going to kind of look at it from a big viewpoint. And I just want to draw out what I think are three helps for the Christian to submit to authority. It's difficult, especially when we think we're right, when we think we're doing what's best to actually submit. So let's look at three things that could help us this morning. Ephesians 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 is all about authority. Not really authority um, in the sense of government and the Christian's response to government, but it is authority within the church and within organization within the church. He talks about authority in three aspects. Authority in a marriage, authority between parents and their children, and authority between masters and slaves. What I want to do is draw out some help for us this morning. Things that on the days when it's hard for us to submit to authority, we can run to this passage and find encouragement and motivation and help. So the first one is going to be in verses 22 through 33. And it's the description of how a wife and a husband are supposed to relate together. And what I'd like us to see from this is that submission to authority is important because submission to authority is a chance to reveal the gospel. It goes beyond the the circumstance at hand. It gives us a chance to illustrate something so much better. Let's read this passage. Verse 22. Wives, 
Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You could read this passage and think that the main characters are the husband and the wife, but you would be wrong. The main character in this passage is Christ. It affects the wife and the husband, but he is the central theme of this text. A name, a title, or a pronoun for Christ appears 14 times in these verses. And there's only 11 verses. He shows up more than the wife or the husband. He shows up in every verse, in every sentence. He's there. He's the point of this passage. So as we read this passage, we have to realize this isn't just about the wife and the husband. This is about something more, which is a good thing too because this is a hard passage. This is a passage that a lot of people trip over as they're reading through the book of Ephesians because these commands are hard. The roles that Paul, through the Holy Spirit and God, assigns to the wife and to the husband are difficult. The wife is commanded to submit to her husband as to the Lord. That's hard. Because I don't think there's been a church in the history of the world that has submitted to Christ like it should have. I don't think any of us as individuals, even in a single day of our lives, have submitted to Christ as we should have. And yet the wife is commanded to submit to her husband. That's a hard verse. At the end, in verse 33, she's commanded to respect her husband. But if the command is hard for the wife, let's just be honest and say it's even harder for the husband in this passage. Because the wife is told to reflect the attitude of the church, but who's the husband told to reflect the attitude of? The Savior. The Savior. It may be hard to submit to Christ like the church submits to Christ, or for the wife to submit to the husband like the church to Christ. But it's far more difficult for the husband to love his wife like Christ loves the church. Or to sacrifice for his wife like Christ sacrificed for the church. It's far more difficult. Because we're so imperfect. We can't reflect the attitude and the mission and the goals of Christ adequately like we're commanded to here. It's just not possible. But that's where Paul and God sets the standard. And we look at this and we say, there's not a marriage in the world that looks like this perfectly. This is the standard? This is what God wants for us? Absolutely. But why? Why? Why are we called to live like this? It's for the good of our homes. It's for the good of our relationships. But ultimately, it's for the gospel, guys. It's for the gospel. Where I read this and I can't help but think that feminism in our country has done immeasurable harm to what God wanted marriage to look like. Feminism a lot of times leads women to disobey this passage. And so I'd like to start just by saying these commands have nothing to do with the ability of the person or their experience or their education level. It's not about the wisdom or intelligence it's not that one person in this relationship is greater than the other or more, more deserving. It's only about the gospel. We do this to reflect Christ. 
we do this to reflect the church's relationship with Christ. And through doing that, we can reflect the gospel to people around us. What if someday, if God lets you get married and you have kids, what if someday your kid looked at you and said, Mom, why do you respect Dad like you do? Why do you defer to him? Why, when there's a disagreement, do you let him leave or lead? Because, let's be honest, <clears throat> let him leave. <laughs> why do you let Dad lead in the household? Why? Maybe you're even smarter than Dad. Let's be honest, husbands fall short all the time. Your marriage may be like mine with Roxy, and a lot of times she does have the greater wisdom or the greater knowledge or the greater attitude, and yet I'm supposed to be the one to lead. What if your kid could ask you someday, why do you let dad do that? Why do you honor him like you do? And you could turn around and say, it's because of Christ, and it's because of the church, and it's because of the message we do this to reflect the authority of Christ in the church. Guys, this goes beyond just our marriages, though. This goes on to everything. Colossians chapter 2, don't tell Skylar that I read out of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 says, You have been filled in him, that's Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. How much of it? All of it. What if someday... You were pulled over by a police officer, not for breaking the law because we submit to authority, but because you accidentally rolled a stop sign. What if you acted towards him as the authority figure in such a way that he was able to say, I've never had anybody treat me with the respect that you have today. And you could turn around and say, I can tell you why. It's because I submit to God's authority who instituted authority, which means I respect you. It all goes back to the gospel. What if your boss someday said, look, I know we've had a rough couple of months in the office and a lot of people are unhappy to, with me, but you have treated me like no one else has. Why is that? You could turn around and say, it's because of my faith. It's because I respect the ultimate authority in my life, which means I respect your authority and I honor you. The way we interact with authority reveals the gospel in every aspect of our lives. I, I was reading the, uh, some news articles earlier this week, and I, I saw that Greece just elected their first female president. And Greece has had a lot of issues. I don't know if you've been watching the news over the last few years, but their debt and their economy and the social unrest in Greece has been awful. What if she was able to turn all of that around and she was the greatest president in Greece's history, the greatest leader, but then she stepped away from office, went back to her hometown and fell in love with somebody who cooks at a great restaurant in her hometown and they eventually get married. Who should lead in that relationship? The ex-president of Greece or the person who makes great scrambled eggs. Sometimes it's hard. But this passage goes beyond all circumstances. And it points back to the gospel. If that lady in Greece, the president in Greece, I don't know her name. If she were a believer, she would still need to let her husband leave. Because it's not about education. It's not about wisdom or intelligence or the fitness of the person to do the task at hand. It's a directive from God for the good of our marriages. But I do want us to see this morning that it does go beyond marriage. And I hope that as you're trying to decide day after day, do I submit to the authorities in my life, you'll realize it's a chance to reveal the gospel. It's a great motivation for us to honor authority. Look at the next one, though. The next one has to do with children and parents. This is another relationship within the church where there is not a single perfect example. There's never been a perfect parent. Nobody's done this before. Every parent is trying to figure out how to do this as they go. How do I honor and love Christ and yet love and teach and discipline my children? There's no perfect parent. And there's definitely no perfect child. 
as children are growing up and they're trying to figure out life, they're trying to take steps into independence, there's a lot of times that that clashes. How do they relate to each other? It's another authority relationship in the church. Parents struggle with sin just like anyone does. Children want independence, especially as they get older. They want to make their own decisions. So how do you do this? Look in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. We're told, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'll be honest with you guys this morning. There were some friends that I had in high school who were more spiritually mature than their parents were. They knew more of the Bible. They knew more about God's will. If it had come to a real-life important decision, my, min- my money would have been on them to make the right decision, not their parents. Their parents were believers too, but baby believers. But man, their kids just really got into studying God's word, and it was a big deal to them. Should my friends have submitted to their parents? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even though their parents weren't perfect, even though they had more knowledge than their parents, they walked closer to the Lord than their parents did. Because just like wives and husbands, it's not about ability. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. The call to respect and obey your parents is a matter of character. So if my first help from chapter 5 was that submitting to authorities helps us to reveal the gospel, the help from the first part of chapter 6 is that submitting to authorities builds character into our lives. It builds character. Paul's wanting the Ephesian children to know that submitting to parents is not a surface issue. You can't submit to your parents in name only. You can't honor and respect your parents in action only. It's a character issue. And I think that we see this in in two main ways. Look at what he says in verse 1. Children, obey your parents because this is practical. No, that's not right. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. This is a matter of right and wrong. He's not trying to be practical here. He's not worried about the social order of the cities in this area, the city of Ephesus. This is a matter of right and wrong. This is a matter of sin and righteousness. This is a matter of justice. But not only that, look at what he goes on to say, the the very next word, honor your father and mother. When you talk about what's right and wrong, and you talk about honor, and how it impacts your life, you're talking about character. Honor is a word we don't talk about enough. Honor is a word that has disappeared from our culture. But honor is incredibly important in the Bible. One of Christ's most rebuking moments has to do with honor. Remember, he looked out and he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Honor is incredibly important to the Lord. And honor is supposed to exist in the relationship between a child and a parent. It's a character issue. It's not about just checking off all the things that your parents give you to do. It's not just about talking good about your parents when you're among your friends. It's a matter of honor. It's a matter of character. You have to do this to be who God wants us to be. And I'll just remind us, The building up of character in our lives should be the utmost priority to a Christian. We want to be people of high moral caliber. Character is essential for us to be walking with the Lord. We emphasize character in the church, and so we emphasize the importance of submitting to authority within a home. The wife submits to the husband, but the children submit to both. Parents make the final call. 
Parents are the leaders. Submitting to parents has nothing to do with who's right and wrong in a situation. Or if you can go to a, maybe even a verse in the Bible to prove your parents wrong, you still submit to them. And the ultimate example of this is Christ. I love this. It's one of my favorite passages in Luke chapter 2. Flip over to Luke chapter 2 with me, if you will. Christ is just a boy at this time. Christ had the greatest character, and so Christ submitted to his parents. Look in verse 51. It says that he went down with them from Jerusalem and came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. Christ was submissive to Mary and Joseph. Christ, the perfect one, he created Mary and Joseph. He holds the world together through his power, and yet he submits to his parents. And they had not been great parents. I love thinking about what this would have been like. They travel to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they leave Jesus behind. Who does that? Who loses track of the Son of God or loses the Savior? Can you imagine what that conversation would have been like between Mary and Joseph? We lost Jesus. We can't find Jesus. For three days, Jesus was lost. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Mary would have said, hey, you're the spiritual leader in this family. I'm submitting to your authority, and this is on you. They had to feel guilty. They had to feel like they had just completely blown it before God. Maybe even Jesus was going to rebuke them whenever they found him again. But that wasn't Christ's attitude. They lost the Savior, were completely disorganized, made tons of mistakes, couldn't find God for three days, and yet Christ goes home and submits to them. Every argument, I take that back, Christ wouldn't have argued with his parents. Every disagreement that would have arisen in Mary and Joseph's household Christ would have been right 100% of the time. Christ never made any mistakes. They never had to rebuke Jesus. And yet Jesus was submissive to them. Someday Jesus would die for their sins, and yet Jesus was submissive to them. It was a matter of character. Mary and Joseph did nothing to earn Jesus' honor and obedience. They didn't do anything to earn that. They were imperfect parents just like everyone else. Christ was submissive to them because of who he was, not because of who they were. And I'll just tell you guys, honoring parents is for a lifetime. Christ honored his mother up until he died. We honor our parents not because of who they are, but because of who we want to be in Christ and because of who he is. So if the first help from Ephesians 5 is that we honor people, we honor authorities, and we submit to authorities because it reveals the gospel. The second one is that we honor and submit to authorities because we want character in our lives. And we want to be following Christ's example. This last one's my favorite. And I'll be honest, it's also the most difficult, especially as Americans. Look in verse 5 of chapter 6. He's going to talk about the relationship between a slave and a master. Bond servants, or more accurately translated slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, 
and that there is no partiality with God. This last help that Paul gives us in the relationship between the slave and the master is that submitting to authority reminds us of our real value, of our real worth as believers. Slavery was a reality in the early church. Just studying the book of Philemon on Wednesday nights, Philemon and Onesimus had a slave-master relationship. They were this passage. Slavery was so common, it was accepted, even in the church. And Paul doesn't attack the institution of slavery. Not here, not in Philemon, not anywhere. Jesus doesn't address the issue of slavery. The Old Testament built rules protecting the institution of slavery. Remember in the Old Testament, if you were an Israelite, you might have slaves and it was a debt issue and you had to pay off your debt. And every 50 years you had the year of Jubilee and God would release all the slaves of their debts. But slavery was an issue in the Old Testament as well. So we have to ask the question, why is slavery not addressed like we would expect it to be addressed? As Americans, we value freedom a lot, and we should. Freedom's a great thing. Why isn't Paul telling the slave and the master, release your slave, let them go? They're your brother in Christ. You shouldn't own your brother. This, this relationship should not even exist in the early church. Why doesn't he say that? That's what I would expect from Paul if I weren't comparing it to the rest of Scripture. And it's because Paul wants to talk about something bigger here. There is a bigger issue than our physical freedom. There's always a bigger issue than that in the New Testament. Slaves in this passage serve masters because through that they are also serving Christ. That's the big issue. Serving Christ, whether you do it as a free man or a slave, is a little bit secondary. Serving Christ is what's most important. And the masters in this passage are generous and compassionate because of Christ and because they know God does not have partiality. This passage reminds us of what's most important. Paul doesn't address the institution of slavery here because there's something more important to talk about. And it's Christ. So I just ask us to kind of get us thinking about this one. What are the differences between us this morning? Maybe we grew up in different states. Maybe we're of a different race. Our upbringing was different. Our income levels are different. Our interests are different. Obviously, our genders are different. Both guys and girls here today. What else is different? We could go on and on listing things that are different. Education level. What's different between us this morning? A lot. Just like in those early churches, there would have been a lot different between the bondservant, the slave, and the master. A lot different. Very many differences. But what are the significant differences between us this morning? If we're all believers here, there's not one. There is not one significant difference between us. Colossians 3.11 says, Here, in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. Man, if you talk about differences, those are differences. Whether or not you are a Gentile or a Jew. Historically, a member of the, the people of God or historically lost and separated from God. That's a difference. But not in the early church. There's not, that difference isn't there anymore. Circumcised or uncircumcised, that's just a way to say Greek or Jew again. Slave or free, that even makes that list. There is no slave or free in the church. Not anymore. Not really. But Christ is all and in all. I love it that we sang that Christ is all song this morning. That's what's most important. Christ is all. Whether or not you're a slave or free is not all. Christ is all. 
whether or not you're living on 5000 a year or 500000 a year. That's not all. Your education level isn't all. Your upbringing or your race is not all. Christ is all, and he's in all. It's kind of like a if-this-then-this relationship. If Christ is in us, he is all. Christ is in all, therefore Christ is all. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So whether or not in Ephesians chapter 6, you were a slave or a master was pretty insignificant. Not anymore. Used to be significant. Culturally, it would have been significant. But in the church, insignificant. Completely insignificant. Whatever you think divides you from your brother is insignificant. Because we are one. We're the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul can write to the slave and he can say, Serve your master because you're serving Christ. And your master is your brother. What if Larry were my master and I were his slave? What if that was still a thing in our country? Should that make me want to serve Larry less? Absolutely not. He's my brother. I should want to serve him more wholeheartedly, honor him more, respect his authority more. In the early church, the only thing that was different between a slave and a master was an authority relationship. That was it. He closes it by saying, There's no partiality with God. None. I think of James when James says, if you have a a poor brother come into your congregation and a rich one, don't tell the rich one he can sit down in a chair while telling the poor one to sit on the floor or stand. You treat them the same because God treats us the same. So it's not a big deal, guys. It's not a big deal that slavery still exists in the church. If it was a big deal, Christ would have addressed it. Paul would have addressed it. The Old Testament would have addressed it. They didn't want to get bogged down in the social structure that was common and lose what was most important in these people's lives. Spiritual slavery makes physical slavery insignificant. We can worry about physical slavery when spiritual slavery has been solved. And in the early church, it hadn't been solved yet. It's never going to be solved There's nothing wrong with freedom. Paul actually writes in 1 Corinthians 7. This is going to be kind of a big passage if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21 through 24, tells us there's nothing wrong with freedom. There's nothing wrong with desiring freedom. 1 Corinthians 7, 21. I love this passage. This passage brings into view what Paul's trying to get at in Ephesians 6. Chapter 7, 21 of 1 Corinthians. Were you a bondservant? That's the same word, slave. When called, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is now a slave of Christ. That's in Romans too, remember? You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is a call to commitment, to contentment. A commitment to contentment. Paul doesn't want people to get caught up in their physical situations. The circumstances physically are as nothing compared to the circumstances spiritually. Paul says if you have a chance to get free, by all means, get free. Being free is awesome. You're your own man. But just remember, whether you're free or a slave, you're also free or a slave. If you're free physically, you're still a slave of Christ. If you're a slave spiritually or physically, you're free in Christ. It equals the it, it levels the playing field. We're all equal. And there are greater things to worry about than our physical circumstances. We have greater callings than that in the New Testament. If we were focused only on our physical circumstances, we would not be focused on joy and contentment and gratitude for the things that God has given us and hope and the word of God 
And those are the things that we should be focused on. Don't misunderstand me. How we treat people is an immense theological issue. What's the greatest commandment? To love God. What's the second? To love your neighbor as yourself. How we love people, how we treat people is important. So what's interesting is that when we look at this Ephesians 6 passage, we have to acknowledge that the slave-master relationship could adequately fulfill the second greatest commandment. The master could treat the slave in such a way that he was still loving his neighbor as himself. And the slave could still treat the master in such a way that he was loving his neighbor as himself. Otherwise, Paul would have said, this social structure is incompatible with the second greatest commandment and we need to lose it in the church. But there was something more important to talk about. How they related to each other and how they related to Christ spiritually was more important than how they related to each other physically. This is kind of a hard thing for us to come to terms with as Americans because we value freedom probably more than anybody else in the world. We've paid some high prices for freedom over the years. We've had issues with slavery in the past in our country. We love our freedom, but we don't need to get caught up in it. We need to pursue spiritual freedom in our church, in our relationships, in our own lives. It's what's most important. I want to give you guys an example uh, that I came across a few years ago in thinking about slavery. Even in the history of our own country, I think it will warm your hearts. Slavery was not biblically um, followed in our country's history in most situations. But there were a couple of people in the Old South in the early 1800s by the name of Charles and Mary Colcock Jones. Colcock Jones, kind of like a hyphenated name there. Charles and Mary. These people were incredible people. They actually owned three plantations and had hundreds of slaves. Treated them biblically. They were devout believers. Treated their slaves with the honor and worth that the New Testament requires of them. Um, eventually, they gave their, their slaves the opportunity for freedom. And many of the slaves stayed on with the household because Charles and Mary felt like family to them. They treated them that well. But even as a young married couple in their late 20s, um, they became convicted that slavery was a major issue in the U.S. And what I would have expected them to do is to free their slaves, help them get to the north, and then become outspoken abolitionists. That is not what they did at all. They did something better. They actually became evangelists. And what Charles and Mary Colcott Jones did was they traveled to dozens, if not hundreds, of plantations in the South. And they would ask the masters, can we please share the gospel with your workers, with your slaves? And they did it over and over and over again for the rest of their lives. Charles and Mary died with slavery still being legal in the U.S., but they had preached the gospel to tens of thousands of slaves. They realized slavery was an issue. It was an issue. And don't get me wrong, I'm so grateful that slavery is no longer an issue in our country. Not that type of slavery. But Charles and Mary realized what the bigger issue was. The spiritual chains that the African Americans faced was much more important than the physical chains. Thousands of people came to Christ because of their preaching. They, um, they actually went around to so many plantations and, and saw so many conversions. God worked miracles. He worked revival. Um, they actually built churches on the plantations and kept coming back to the same plantations and actually training up young men in the plantations to be pastors in those churches. They did incredible work, incredible kingdom work, and they taught the slaves at the plantations, avail yourself of freedom if it comes, but be content wherever you're called. Wherever God finds you, wherever you become a Christian, we are people of contentment. 
It was an incredible message. And God did incredible things with it. When they died, there were hundreds of slaves that came to their funeral because they were their spiritual parents. They taught them something about authority, about God's authority, and how it should impact us submitting to human authority. They taught the slaves that physical slavery was insignificant compared to the freedom found in Christ. And that's the message for all of us. That's why we submit to authority. Whether it's the wife-husband relationship, the child-parent relationship, or the slave and master relationship, we submit to every human authority because we submit to Christ's authority. He is the only deciding factor in our life, the decision maker, the one with all the authority, all the power. So how does this part, this relationship of master and slave affect us today? None of us are physical slaves today. What if you never get promoted at your current job? Is that okay with you? Are you content with where God has called you? If you never get promoted, realize you've been promoted in God's family. You're a child of God with an inheritance and a future, and the Bible actually says you're going to inherit a kingdom. What if you never make more money than you do right now? Are you content with that? Are you content with the inheritance that Peter says is undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you? Is that enough for you? Is that enough for me? What if God never lets you get married? Are you content with the spouse that you have in Christ? He can be everything. He wants to be everything. What if because of sin and differences in opinion about truth, you don't have a good relationship with your family? They've pushed you away because of your commitment to Christ. Are we content with our heavenly family, with our church family? What if you feel unappreciated at your community or at your workplace? Do you realize and are you content with the fact that Christ loves and appreciates you? Your church family loves and appreciates you. You are more valuable than you'll ever know. When we remind ourselves of the heavenly realities, our physical circumstances become far less important to us. And we can submit ourselves to every human institution that is an authority that Romans 13 says that God himself has instituted and upholds. One of the most convicting things to me is actually found in the book of, oh man, I forgot to jot it down. It's either first or second Peter. And Peter addresses this same issue and he says we need to be um, submitting to every authority because it's designed by God. And when you look back at the timing of history, when Peter said to honor the emperor, there's a very good chance that Nero was the emperor at that time. Nero, who would throw garden parties and burn the bodies of Christians to light the parties. Nero, who burned Rome and then blamed it on the Jews and the Christians. And Peter told the believers to honor even him, to submit to even him. And it's because it's a gospel issue. It's a nature of God issue. It's an obedience issue. But what Peter goes on to say is he says that slaves should even honor the masters who are unjust. Even the unfaithful masters. The masters who don't treat their servants like Ephesians 6 says, to stop threatening and to know that God shows no partiality. We even honor authorities that are imperfect. It's hard, but it is important for us to do it as we pursue obedience to Christ and as we pursue contentment in Christ. He's enough. If we're content where God has called us, we're willing to submit. As we fight the root of pride in our lives that started in the Garden of Eden, we're willing to submit. Because we only want what God wants for us. We only want what Christ has in store. So we can trust him. So, to recap, the three helps. Submitting to authority helps us to reveal the gospel to other people. Submitting to authority helps us to develop character in our own lives. 
And submitting to authority reminds us where our worth is, where our value is. I don't mind submitting to somebody who's above me in an earthly position. That doesn't affect my worth at all or my sense of value at all or where I place my hope. I hope that encourages you this morning. There's a lot of authorities that we, have to, we do have to submit to. And I would just encourage you, if you happen to be placed in a role by God's grace where you are an authority figure, do it wisely. Be just, be gentle, be generous like Christ who humbled himself for us. If you're a believer this morning, I hope this encourages you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I would just tell you, it needs to start with you acknowledging God's authority. Maybe you've gone your whole life not acknowledging his authority, not submitting to his authority. That can start today. Philippians 2 says that at the end, we're all going to be on our knees before God. All of us, believers and unbelievers. But you can get on your knees before God today. You can acknowledge his authority today. You'll bow before him as a sinner and you can rise by God's grace as a child of God. And we want that for you today. Real joy won't be found until you submit to God's authority in your life. So I would just plead with you. Christ is the ultimate authority and Christ deserves our submission. That's where real purpose, real joy, real hope is found in life. He can forgive us. And that's what all of us want for you today. Let me pray for us. And then I'd like to take just a minute or two for you to do that, to acknowledge God's authority in your life. And if I could just give you some homework today, I would encourage all of us sometime today to actually physically get on our knees before the Father and say, I'm going to be here someday. I choose to be here today. Do it as an individual. Do it with your family. Do it with some friends. But acknowledge God from your knees. It's a powerful thing.